0: But here's the kicker. The average cost associated with one recidivism event is over $150,000. That's the total cost, system costs, social costs, everything else, $150,000. Now, it's often said the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same things and expecting different results. That is an addiction. We are addicted to our current
1: system of justice, to our punishment paradigm. Today I'm with David E. Risley, host of Justice Voices, the podcast that delivers eye-opening stories and commentary about criminal justice, healing and safer communities. David's journey is rich and varied. For 32 years, yes, 32 years, David was a federal prosecutor for the Central District of Illinois, where he led counterterrorism prosecutions was lead attorney on multi-jurisdictional drug distribution conspiracies for the Organised Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, that's a mouthful. Internationally David also served as attorney advisor for the Iraqi High Tribunal where he helped investigate crimes against humanity, genocide and war crimes committed by Saddam Hussein and high-ranking members of his former regime, and probably Baathist Party. I think it's fair to say David's expertise is pretty vast. Some might say it's hyperbole, not to me. From criminal justice policy reform, anti-violence strategy, investigating and prosecuting complex multi-jurisdictional crime and criminal organisations, anti-terrorism and national security law, to international crime justice, international humanitarian law and Egyptian law. What a list. Well, with Justice Voices, David has now got a vision and mission to build a strategic action platform to redesign the US criminal justice system. A pretty seismic task indeed. Indeed to redirect resources to more cost-effective solutions and reform delivery of justice for all. Wow. Welcome, David.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. It's good to be here. It's a little uncomfortable listening to your list from where I've been and and all of that. I'm the one who said that your description of me with vast expertise was a little (laughs) bit of hyperbole, at least in my view.
1: (laughs) Well... When I sort of look at that and compare to my misspent 32 years, I'm going, (laughs) where did it all go wrong in advertising? But that said, it's great to actually establish what you do, what you've done, and what you're going on to do. But with this new version of the podcast, we really like to start by getting into the fundamental questions about who you are, who you think you are as a human being, as your unique characteristics, your your values, your principles. So perhaps you could reflect on that and help us understand a bit more about David the person rather than the David what you've done.
0: I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that.
1: None of us do. That's, a, that's the issue. None of us do.
0: Well, in fact, I've sometimes thought about what's my story? Well, my story is really this collection of stories of other people that I've had relate, you know interactions with and worked with in the course of my life, my career. So it's a lot easier to talk about them than it is to talk about me. So who am I? Well, I grew up in a fairly Norman Rockwell-ish type upbringing and environment in a small town in central Illinois.
1: I've got to stop you there. For people that might not be familiar with Norman Rockwell, as in people probably outside of the U.S., could you just expand on that?
0: Well, it may be even be a generational thing, too. Norman Rockwell is a famous American painter and illustrator. And his illustrations were of kind of traditional small town scenes of real life, all kinds of things, Americana, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And at one time, just to illustrate, we had a friend of mine and I, along with a couple of classmates in high school, had a a movie our senior year as a project in an English class. And this involves some scenes of a guy and a gal walking down the street of our hometown. And anyway, we showed that at an English class at the University of Illinois. And the professor, who was plainly from Chicago, said, that was fantastic. That was just pure Norman Rockwell. Where did you find that place? (laughs) And we looked at each other and said, we live there? <laughs> well, where is it? That's about five miles outside of Champaign-Urbana, where we where we were. And obviously, this was a different world mm-hmm. to him and to most people in the class who were from the Chicago area or other major metropolitan areas. So that was part of what shaped me, who I am, I think in a positive way. Also, my parents were just salt-of-the-earth people who Taught us good values. I mean, the great generation, as we call it, in the United States. The World War II generation, same in the UK. Just remarkable experiences that they had gone through, and they transmitted values, a, a value base mm. to their children, to uh, to me
1: and how to would my you, brothers. How, how would you describe that?
0: Well, it was a family, the fundamental principles of that our country and the democracy are based upon. Be nice. We attended church. It was a Protestant denomination, fairly ecumenical Protestant denomination. And then we moved from that had been in Springfield, where I am now, come full circle, Springfield, Illinois, in the Champaign-Urbana area where the University of Illinois is located, but there, I worked at a pharmacy where the owner of the pharmacy was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I didn't know that when I started working there. But I, he tended to hire people who were members of the church, and about half of them were. And I kind of gradually became aware I was surrounded by these members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that led to me asking questions. I had some serious prejudices against the church at that time, and based you, on things— What age are you? Doing? know, well, at that time, I was 19 and a freshman at the University of Illinois. Those questions led to curiosity, and curiosity led to more questions and some serious study of what the church taught and, whether, and prayer, a lot of prayer, about whether this message that Jesus Christ had restored his church to the earth today and spoke to us through living prophets and apostles today, just as he did, did anciently. I, of course, was skeptical. I'm not a joiner. So the prayer was serious. I figured if 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 this is true, then God'll tell me, and if it's not, He'd tell me that too. But at one point, I and this is this shapes my worldview, the way I view other people around me. Before I was, joined the church, I went to a meeting at the church where they were rededicating a stake center, what we call a stake center, S T A K E. It's a like a diocese center in Catholic terms, in Champagne, And at that time, a member of the first presidency of the church and Eldon Tanner was speaking. And he's a very stoic guy. But at the end of his message, he said, I know as surely as that I am standing here before you today that we are the literal spirit offspring of God. And as he said that, a feeling it is was a tangible feeling of a wave sweeping over me and as it did i knew that he knew what he said was true not because of the wave but concurrently with it and it was so real that afterwards when friends asked me what was what was your favorite part of the meeting i said the wave and they were like what <laughs> they were they were so well, tell us about that that's exactly right <laughs> tell us about that <laughs> yeah but There's a lot that can be said about that and the journey that that took me. I became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. of Latter-day Saints, am today, and that shapes my worldview. But that fundamental principle that there's a spiritual, literal spiritual kinship between me and everybody else in the world who lives now, who has lived and will live in the world as a literal child of God, that changes the way you view the world. It changes the way you view people. And it changes the way you think people should be treated.
1: Yeah, it's, it's in, interesting. I don't want to go off on too many a tangent right at this point. But, you know, I had a conversation with my sister, who's a member of um, Evangelical Church in Scotland. Also, with my mum's local minister, priest in Scotland. It's just around the, the the principles of what our belief systems are. And we live in a world that's in, particularly because of social media. People are in individuality and in that we're all individuals and this power of self the reality is that we are whatever however you define it and the put, the context we put it in the language we use we are connected beings that there is some matrix or what we call a divine matrix that connects us all As individuals, as humans, that's why when we feel a sense of connection in a community, in a neighbourhood, in a family, in a home, and then a sense of disconnection when you feel the negative energies in different places. Now, I could we go into whole hours podcasts about whether you call that the God and God connecting us, in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit, and all these the language we've been given. And handed down through generations, usually through scriptures, to help us understand and to learn that we are all connected beings and we have shared responsibilities to each other. I think that is something that I think most people would agree with. I think that, that the challenge a lot of people have is to embrace the, a lot of the traditional language that come with membership of a, a religious body whether it be within Islam, whether it be in Christianity, or within Hinduism. But I think the universal principle of what you're talking about, I think everyone would probably agree with, hopefully.
0: Well, I think people would, they wouldn't necessarily put it in religious terms, and yet people have a spiritual experience. Even people who consider themselves to be atheists may still have a spiritual experience. They just define it differently. I have a separate podcast, GodUnites.com, you can go to that, and I, I have talked to a couple of catholic priests a, a a muslim scholar friend of mine a rabbi and talked about their a a news reporter here a local news reporter talking about their faith journeys and the fact is from different religious perspectives doctrines may divide people and yet we all seem to speak the same spiritual language as they describe their faith journeys there's this spiritual connection that you can see That I have with them, that they have with each other. it's exactly what you're talking about. And I think that that's important to recognize Mm -hmm. that that's real. Now, at the same time, I just, in a Sunday school lesson, I just gave this last Sunday. I was making the analogy. I said, you know, the application of religion to each of us is individual, but the destination is collective. It's much like learning to play a musical instrument and playing in an <laughs> orchestra. Each person has to learn to play their instrument mm-hmm. and, and to learn the music. And they're different instruments. They may play different parts at different times even during an orchestral piece. But there is a someone conducting, God, and they all tune themselves to a common you know, master note and, again, God, and then they play beautiful music collectively and yet not in unison, in harmony. And that's Mm -hmm. the point, this harmony among people that, to me, is the heart of both religion and justice. I mean, justice is, to me, harmony, and injustice is a tear in the fabric of that, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and Justice would then be repairing or healing that tear.
1: When you you talking about an orchestra, and I get that, but what about when you talk about when we were putting in the terms of if we're going to use a musical in analogy? What about jazz, where there's discord?
0: Oh yeah, and yet and yet jazz can be harmony. I mean, it's not harmony in the sense of it, har, jazz is is beautiful music, and it makes beautiful music even out of discord. it's not, it's not random notes. There's purpose, there, there's structure, there's meaning to it. And it becomes something that somehow people feel, they experience, you, we experience music. And I think ultimately that's what we should be trying to do in our communities, is to experience this, hear the music and tune what ourselves you, into the music.
1: What do you think, I mean, I was brought up uh, a Protestant within a sort of father was a Catholic mother, Protestant, Scottish, Presbyterian church. So that's my context. But, you know, I've, I've always struggled to understand atheism, of why people say there's no belief. Because even if you don't believe in God and any religion, you've got to believe that there's something bigger. Because just the subconscious self and the when you understand how energies work and ideas and inspiration come to people from nowhere... That there is some other transcendent sort of level to life. I just don't understand how atheists believe there's nothing there, and it's just random. What's your perspective? i sure Your sp- perspective on that?
0: Well, I'm be- not sure that there are many true atheists. I think many people who claim to be atheists are simply rejecting the organized religion, the, even maybe the language of religion, and and yet at the same time they may agree with you. Well. Because there is an extraordinary amount of hubris in believing that there is no reality other than what we can comprehend through Mm -hmm. our human scientific methods. And I think very few people would believe that. So to believe that there is something greater, that there is the potential for higher intelligence, other intelligence, and communication. I'm not sure that there are many people who would actually believe that we are alone in the universe and that somehow we are some aberration. There there may be, but even those people will experience a kinship with people around them, this connection that you're talking about.
1: I think it would be interesting for you to get a couple a guest on the podcast, someone like a Scott Galloway, who's a declared atheist, but has incredible principles and values that he lives by, and get him to talk about it. There's a challenge for you.
0: Yeah. No, there's a friend of mine who is uh, Jewish, claims to be an atheist, that may sound like a contradiction of terms, but it's it's not really. And he enjoys the Jewish community values and all that. But he says he said to me, you know, even though I'm an atheist and, and you believe in God, we still end up in pretty much the same place. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that spiritual harmony yeah. that I'm talking about. Not everybody describes it, you know, the same, may speak in a different dialect, and yet there is people's sense when there's this harmony and arm he has a strong sense of justice, for example, it's almost a universal language, justice, mm. even little kids will say that's not fair,
1: yeah, okay, so i I think you've done yeah a really good job of expressing who you are and your core values, and you touched on you jumped ahead a bit there and answered my next question is, is who made you you in terms of parents, siblings, teachers, mentors, and I know you've talked about it, you've got a YouTube video where you talk about your principles. And where they come from, and people will put that in the show notes, but perhaps you could just maybe expand upon the the role of others in forming the you the you the david david E. Risley the person
0: well that's it's hard to identify particular people beyond parents, my brother's family, friends. I was very fortunate in a relatively small town uh, that had to have classmates that are close friends even today that helped help shape me. Mm -hmm. I I served a mission for my church, and that was a powerful experience, shaping me, Mm -hmm. opened me up to possibilities that I hadn't imagined possible before. And then the experience of marriage, family, oh, becoming a parent is a humbling and educational, illuminating, growing experience. It it completely Uh, changes things.
1: Never-ending. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Never ending. And going to law school, the teachers there, particularly the dean of the law school, Rex Lee, actually the father of Senator Lee, now Senator Lee, I think uh, not to be confused between the two, but Rex Lee became a Solicitor General of the United States, arguing cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, and had a view of the law that had a lot of impact on me. And, uh, when I first went to law school, I, I had a vision of doing something like, well, backing up. I mean, my father, one day we were talking about the tremendous advances in his lifetime technologically. He was a, an engineer, electrical engineer, a very gifted design engineer. And as he talked about that, he said, but it's interesting. With all these technological advances, we still face the same human problems that we did in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, up to that point, I had thought about becoming an engineer. I, I mean, that was just in my DNA. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of I guess it's problem solving. I guess I came, have come to understand it to be practical problem solving and engineering, a way to do that, technical problem solving and design. I decided right then, maybe instead of trying to tackle technological problems, I should devote myself to tackling human problems. And that was a pivotal moment for me, an epiphany. What the
1: age were you when that hit you?
0: Well, at that time, I would probably be about 17 years old. And between my junior and senior years in high school, I decided to become a lawyer rather than an engineer.
1: One, I think it's an amazingly enlightened view of yourself and your future, to be able to think that way at that young age, obviously impacted by the influence of your father. But the statement of instead of trying to solve, I say, engineering problems, you're going to solve human problems. That doesn't necessarily lead to the conclusion of going, oh, law. I would have gone medicine, psychology. So, so you know, that might have been more social work. What made you think law was the pathway to solving human problems? I don't know. I, <laughs> I uh, It did. Now, it, at
0: one point along the way, about my junior year, at the University of Illinois, mm-hmm. I, again, between my junior and senior years, <laughs> I had a good friend whose father was a psychiatrist, and he became a mentor to me. And I thought, well, maybe that's the path, you know, kind of along the lines of what you're thinking, mm-hmm. that I should be on rather than law. And mm-hmm. so I had this real struggle. I spent some serious time sorting out, you know, the pros and cons, because that would be a major shift in mm-hmm. my undergraduate study, to shift into headed toward medicine and then beyond that to psychiatry. And that is a story in itself of a spiritual answer that led me to law. And I've never really doubted after that, that law was where I should go. Now, the question is, law is virtually life. (laughs) So, you know, there's certain areas within that. And I ended up, somewhat to my surprise, being drawn to criminal justice. And it it has almost felt like, I mean, I haven't framed it in this term, but it's almost like a calling. It's drawn to something that fit me. I was a good fit. It was a good fit for me, and I it filled me with a sense of mission and purpose. I also have a strong have a strong sense of justice. I also have a strong protective instinct to protect society from harm. And so, a lot of things came together. The analytical component. The problem-solving component, at least the way I approached it, and uh, very much it can be a, a thinking process with some types of crime and it, some adventure mm. <laughs> with, with some of it as well. I mean, the career even led me to Iraq, as you've yeah. said, and to Egypt, mm. and also it, it, it was where I belong.
1: You sort of answered my next question, which was, what were your earliest memories of realization that you wanted to make a difference in the world? And how did you develop your moral compass or moral imagination and sense of justice? So that was clearly around the time where you did decide that was you were going to change the world, not through engineering, but through law. And that sense of justice and your moral compass, I'm assuming from your what you've said already, really were a byproduct of your, your parental and extended family and religious upbringing.
0: Well, largely, but there's part of it that seems... Almost as part of me because
1: just innate you mean
0: yeah when i when I think of conversations that I had around the dinner table, and Dad was a, very much a staunch conservative, as the word was used traditionally back then, quite mm-hmm. differently than what it may mean today but and as he would and this was the Vietnam War era,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know and i'm I was draft age approaching draft age and being draft age, and so I was thinking. Big things and and asking myself what's right and wrong in both the micro and macro sense. So as he would talk, I would sometimes take the other side of things. And to him, I was he, he worried that I was some sort of arch left wing liberal, you know, <laughs> hippie. And then I'd go, <laughs> then I'd go and I'd sit down and have dinner with a friend of mine from church. She and I were leading the young single adult program in our church. So we spent. I spent time in her house and with her parents, and they were pretty much arch uh, left-wing hmm. liberals. And when I talked to them, I'd take the other side, and they'd think I was the arch-conservative, right-wing conservative. And I realized, I said, what? This is kind of interesting. What is it that makes me—I had this feeling that they're not considering the other point of view, the other side of this. And I realized that part of me has this strong sense of it's not fair to fail to recognize that there's more than one approach or point of view on a particular topic and whether you call that analytical. But it led me to make sure that the discussion was balanced and that it therefore was more reasonable and helped me at least to test my thinking against different these two different extremes, not not extremes, not by today's standards, by you know, today's standards kind of go off the rails when you think of extremes, but it it helped me to realize that there was something about me that wanted to look at more than one point of view and to arrive at reasonable conclusions as a result of it. Kinda of, kind of the dialectic process, which is very much at the heart of legal reasoning in law. So it just fit.
1: Do you think it helps to be an empath? To, to be a, an effective attorney, lawyer, to be able to see both sides, to reason, to understand, to weigh up the pros and cons of both sides and, and have an appreciation, respect for, or to be comfortable in ambiguity. Because certain, arguably, when I hear you talk about the Vietnam War, you are clearly diametrically opposed views to that war, depending on your political leaning and to a certain extent your upbringing. And the same is true today. If we look at between what's happening in most countries, the radical polarization between left and right, everyone is certain of their, their views or their convictions, that there is no comfort in the center in the middle ground. And yet we, the world is ambiguous and there are rights and wrongs. And the, yes, there are biases on both sides. And very few people feel comfortable in that area. To be living a in a place of ambiguity rather than a place of certainty is that core to you would you say
0: absolutely
1: mm-hmm.
0: absolutely it and now you ask whether it's important to the legal profession? I think yes, it is. do lawyers necessarily have it well, there's all kinds of lawyers, and I would hope that prosecutors would in particular my profession, but a lot don't, and that's that, makes, that can make them dangerous. Judges particularly need to understand that people are complex. And when they're anyone involved in problems, you know, human problem solving, in whatever profession it may be, has got to understand everyone's different. Everyone is complex. And the unifying thing for me is we are all children of God. And There is intrinsic value in every person and that there is something in our spiritual DNA, if you want to call it that, of the divine in everyone, including the worst among us in terms of behavior. So that makes people fascinating to me and also brings a a degree of humility regarding, okay, how do you solve this problem? criminal justice system may be good at containing a problem, you know, like through imprisonment or something like that, but it doesn't solve the problem, hence much of the topic of justice voices and what I'm engaged in now to try to come up with better answers than what we currently have. But at the same time, you have to understand the law is a blunt instrument. Law is a blunt instrument. And so when you're dealing with the complexities of a human being, law may not be the optimal instrument for addressing those issues, but it may be necessary to contain
1: them and maybe direct people to solutions. Mm. That statement itself is politically po- polarizing, I would suspect, <laughs> depending on which side of the spectrum you sit on. We'll come and talk a bit more about that in terms of the work you're doing at the moment. I was intrigued by why you said you were gravitated towards criminal justice, because, yeah, I could understand that the being drawn to law as a, a mechanism to solve human problems was appealing but often post-university idealism wanes and reality bites and life kicks in family children economic realities and people settle in to the comfort zone and take the often the easy path what led you not to take let's say the easy path through the legal profession and take some role in a city law firm working in let's say conveyancing or whatever <laughs> real estate? Because I don't think it, it may have more glamour. And I suppose if you read books by John Grisham, it's you know it sounds great to be in the criminal justice system, but it's probably not the most glamorous. It's more of the underbelly of the world.
0: Well, I'm going to reframe your question. Yeah. What kept me from going, not necessarily the easy way, but the more prosperous way?
1: That's the other way of putting it, yeah.
0: Because certainly as things unfolded, I had legal capacities and skills that would have been highly marketable, and it would have made a lot more money mm-hmm. in the private sector than in the public sector. And, and even in criminal law, and practicing mm-hmm. being a white-collar crime defense lawyer, as many prosecutors do become, could have made a lot more money. But that wasn't me. That wasn't where I fit. I, I wasn't a, a hired gun. Mm-hmm. I, I needed a purpose, and my purpose was protecting the community. And there were things happening— in my community in central illinois and the communities that i worked with that some there needed to be an intervention or people were going to get killed and people lives were being ruined and that drove me so it's it's not so much that i chose the path as much as the path chose me hmm.
1: you don't strike me as a rebellious person but there seems to be a sort of a inner rebel inside you that made you see maybe that's tied to your your sense of justice that you're not prepared to take accept the status quo, and you think that there's a better way.
0: Well, I think that's fair. I both in the fact that am I a rebel? No, but am I a problem solver? Yes. I remember I told you my dad was a gifted design engineer. Okay. Well, anyone who's involved in designing better technological solutions to problems starts with what is it what's the need and what tech, what technical tools are available that could be brought to bear on that and how can we design something that will meet that need or achieve that desired outcome well that type of thinking is exactly the way i approached my career as a prosecutor it made me i didn't think different from others but i've since learned probably different than most prosecutors, not all by any means. Some of them are just hired guns. Some of them, they, they say, as long as there's probable cause to charge somebody with a crime, it's up to the jury to determine whether they're guilty or not. Mm-hmm. Those people are dangerous wielding the power of prosecution. And when you stand up in front of a judge and you're rec- making a sentencing recommendation, if you don't understand that that person is a human being mm-hmm. and you're your brother have a sense of, this is my brother, this is my sister, then you have no business presuming to stand there before a judge or being a judge Mm -hmm. and imposing, crafting some sort of reasonable sentence or legal outcome in a case. In those
1: positions, there must have been many a time when you've had to confront doubt around those human beings that you're dealing with, the people that you see as human beings, not just as the those sitting on the wrong side of the law, which is, a, as you say, a blunt instrument. How do you deal with dealing with fragility? I mean, let's face it, everyone has fragility at times and faces doubts. How have you managed those through your career?
0: That's an interesting question. Doubts? Well, first of all, in in my profession as a prosecutor, the the question was, did they... Or did they not do what they're accused of doing? Did they commit a crime? That, okay, I needed to be certain of that. I was the first first jury, the first judge, the first defense attorney in sorting that out. Because if I didn't cross that threshold, then, well, I wasn't going where that yeah. might otherwise lead. Some do, but I didn't. But what really happens is when you face a human being and you're coming up against things like mandatory penalties, and a sentencing structure that is designed to either put to to achieve some consistency in the administration of justice which is i mean it's unjust for people to commit the same crime and get widely dis- disparate sentences but at the same time when you try to solve that problem you can create a problem of the, the lack of flexibility to match the sentence to the individual in front of the the court at the time, that woodenness to the uh, to the federal system in particular where I prosecuted was oftentimes deeply troubling to me with some of the outcomes. I suppose I took refuge when, after I retired from the u s Department of Justice and and working for a while as an ethics officer for the Illinois Department of Transportation, I ended up being recruited into work in the Illinois governor's office, previous administration, as the director of criminal justice policy, public safety policy. And there I was freed to think about the way things should be, not just how to make a system that was not well-suited in every instance of achieving a just or problem-solving result, how to make it work, or at least optimize how it worked. How could, I, how could it be redesigned? How could you take the practical realities of crime and what drives crime and the harm that it does to victims and, and to victimizers, for that matter, because nobody goes away unscathed after the commission of a crime. And how do we take all this, this complexity and, and come up with better solutions? Now, I will tell you, during my time in the governor's office, I came to the conclusion that trying to uh, approach these problems in a political environment with political solutions is, from the top down, is, is working at it the wrong way. It's a little bit like trying to push a rope because politicians respond to public opinion. And so that led me, when I left the governor's office on a, on a quest, I had some ideas of my own, a lot of ideas. I knew people with good ideas. I knew things that were solutions and are promising, had the promise of being better solutions. But how, how could those actually be implemented since I'd been so frustrated in the governor's office? Well, you have to change public opinion. You have to change public perceptions of the problem and potential solutions. And I thought, what changes people's minds? Well, what shaped my attitudes? It's been the stories of all these people, hundreds of people that I've dealt with, including people who were victims of crime and perpetrators of crime. Well, if that shapes how I view things, maybe it'll shape the way the public views it. And hence, I started Justice Voices. And that his podcast has featured the stories, interesting, I literally eye-opening stories. I think for most people, of people with lived experience, with what led them to commit crime, to experience crime, and be victims of crime. And so there's that. Now I'm hoping, but okay, that so that raises all sorts of questions. That you also have to provide answers, you know, better solutions, and that's what I'm working
1: on now. You, I mean, I am familiar with your justice voices work. But I've heard you talk about it's not just your perspective on justice, it's your perspective on injustice. Could you maybe just expand a little bit on that the way that we, because you've talked about the law being blunt, and just talk about the nuances between injustice and justice?
0: Well, I'm not sure it's a matter of nuance. I think that we are off the rails when we talk about People who have committed crimes, we have a punishment paradigm of how to address that, a punishment paradigm of justice and how to solve crime problems. And that punishment paradigm is both is just off the rails. In court, you would hear about sentences that are one of the factors is we need to satisfy the demands of justice. Well, what is justice? I mean, justice isn't a person. Justice doesn't demand anything. People do. So whose demands for for punishment are we satisfying? Well, it's a public prosecutor who's there in, in a public court satisfying the public's demand for retribution, for punishment, for vengeance, for whatever, you know, for that this crime needs to be punished. Well, what about the victims? I mean, since when did people who were not even involved in the crime get to say, what is or is not just is an outcome the victims are the ones who should have should be first and foremost the people who would be whose interests would be considered and they may vary in what they view as a just outcome
1: and that's what i was going to say there that making the victims the arbiters of justice surely leads to a non standardized justice system that would be Punishment would be meted out based on the sort of the the nature of the, the the characteristics of the of the victim. Is that more just? Do you think? I mean, it's a, well,
0: it's, it's it can be. Right. I mean, restorative justice, yeah. restorative practices are one example of where that is done. And problem-solving courts may view the perpetrator of the crime as a victim. And try to heal what it is that leads them to commit crimes, whether that be trauma, this process of violentization that I talked about in a couple of previous episodes of the Justice Voices podcast, or what I'll call dopamine craving driven behaviors, the drug courts, things of that sort. Okay, but when you, I'll use a because I spent over five years of my life living in the predominantly Muslim areas of the Middle East. Okay, and I so I studied Islamic law. Islamic criminal law, you know, of course I was interested in, and there's a certain category of crimes, including murder, where in Islamic law, just use that as a prototype here, the victims get to choose between whether they want one of three outcomes retribution, revenge being number one. Number two, restitution, meaning they you know, if this was a murder or something, the breadwinner of the family was lost, there's there are monetary damages to it. And number three, forgiveness. Now, let's suppose the the victim wants vengeance, and that's imposed. Let's suppose another victim, same crime, what they want is restitution. And then the third same crime says, no, God wants me to forgive, and I do forgive. This person needs our help. All right. Same crime, three very different outcomes. Oh, and one factor I should add, the victims only get to choose one of these three outcomes. Okay. So now you end up with very disparate outcomes in for someone who committed the same crime for the same reasons with the same perpetrator needs that they may have. Is that justice? So the question you posed, does it have an easy answer? No. But it definitely the interests of victims has have to be first and foremost, and there ha, the system needs to address how can we meet those needs. Because if there's not justice for the victims, how can it be called justice just because it meets public demands or yeah. public interests? The public interest being primarily in public safety and an outcome that is sufficiently legitimate in the eyes of the public that they don't resort to vigilantism, mm-hmm. you know, self-help yeah. solutions, public order, in other words, rule of law. So the public has interests. But when you only pursue the public interest and put that over the interests of victims, it's hard for me to conceive of that as justice. Mm-hmm. So there has to be some way. And, and restorative justice is one way of doing
1: that. It's funny, as you were talking about, I just made me think of a, a wonderful roundtable game for a bunch of criminal justice lawyers at lunch. Where you pick the three sort of serious criminals and decide if it's got to be retribution, restitution, or forgiveness? <laughs> that would be an interesting sort of conversation.
0: Well, it would be, and I, I, the fact of the matter is, let's take death penalty. There are plenty of stories of victims who have who have lost a loved one and mm-hmm. they've wanted justice in the form of retribution, death mm-hmm. penalty, and who, as time has gone on, have changed their view. Mm-hmm. I In the governor's office, I would sometimes read applications, petitions for clemency from the governor. And I read one, a, the father of a victim filing a statement in support of a, a clemency in the form of time served for the man who killed his son. Now, he said, when I started off, I wanted him to receive the death penalty. Absolutely. My wife, too. Just skipping the details, he ended up meeting this man and developing a relationship with him. Well, once he knew that man as a person, he no longer had that desire to kill him or to have him killed. And in fact, he, and he wouldn't have cared. I mean, restitution, that wasn't even an issue for him. It was healing his need for healing. And that healing came through forgiveness and it had a powerful impact on the, on the man who had killed his son positive impact. So, these are complex issues. The Mm -hmm. law is a blunt instrument. Perhaps the law is not the ideal means of resolving all of these issues. And in fact, in in Islamic law, what I was just describing to you, the public is not part of that proceeding in that murder case. Uh It's actually a a private action. Different concept of justice, different construct of justice. Mm -hmm. But it can be subverted because if you're a guilty party and you are the victim is poor, and you have the guilty party has lots of money, rich, mm-hmm. they can buy their way out of the problem mm. by paying off the victim, so-called blood money. So, does that system work perfectly? Nope. Mm-hmm. But it is instructive. So, these are topics of serious thought. There is a real design issue here to be resolved.
1: I mean, it leads us nicely like, to the, something you wrote on your blog, where you quoted the pretty shocking statistic uh, of recidivism in the US between 2005 and 2014, where it went from an estimated 68% of released prisoners were rearrested within three years, rising up to 83% within nine years. We all know that the penal system here is flawed, and you've said enough already to, to, to convince anyone listening that there is redesign needed. But what are the first steps we need to take to address this this fundamental recurring problem? Well, I think we
0: should approach it much like we would in dealing with an addiction. I think in a sense, we are addicted to punishment as our concept of justice. And the first step in resolving an addiction is to recognize the problem that there is a problem to be solved, that it is an addiction. And I think one of the most jarring ways to do that is the statistic you cited, which is people go through prison. Here in Illinois, we have a sentencing policy advisory council, SPAC, or SPAC, and they estimate that the true cost, when you calculate all the costs of imprisonment in Illinois, is $70,000 per inmate per year. $70,000. insane. Okay. Now, also, let me add to that. When I was in the governor's office and I asked our Department of Corrections, and and this was back 2018, what's Mm. the median time that people spend in prison in Illinois? Now, by median, I don't mean the mean, the average. I mean, what's the hinge point? Half of them serve more, half less. The number that came back to me was eight months. People were serving eight months or half of them were serving eight months or less mm. at a cost of $70,000 per inmate wow. per year. Okay, that's jarring. And that's the sort of thing that gets people's attention. Now, you talked about recidivism. Mm. The SPAC has also looked at, what's the true cost of recidivism? Recycling people through. Is the system working? Because we have... You so know, just i in, so in illin-
1: interrupt there. So someone's, if that mean, medium...
0: What's it mean? The median, median is eight months, the so hinge point, the, the middle point.
1: So that means if those people leaving after eight months, the likelihood that they're going to be reconvicted is between that 68% and
0: 83%. Probably overall in terms of recidivism, has a problem been solved or is it just kicking the can down mm. the road? Some of them, okay, that's it. I I don't want any more of this, Mm -hmm. you know, for them, they were deterred. Yeah. Maybe they got hooked up with resources or they're motivated to hook up with resources. Maybe they got the money to or the means to or Mm -hmm. the family support, whatever it may be. But then there's the others, particularly those where it was the drug related crime or trauma related crime, the the factors or community situations that mm-hmm. led to them committing crime, they're being released into exactly the same circumstances that led to them committing the crime in the first place without providing a solution. Educated they with rese- more insight
1: into how to commit crime because if prison is a college, then they come out more educated.
0: Yeah, you're referring to what yeah. a former defendant of mine told me. He was somebody who had gone to prison. He was a low-level marijuana drug dealer and somebody had stolen the marijuana from him, and he figured, you know, you can't let people do this, or, or you're going to be perpetually the victim. So he came up with the solution of putting a pipe bomb up on the windowsill of a bedroom of the place, the apartment in the housing projects where he thought this guy lived. But well, it, it went off and sent shrapnel throughout the house. And uh, turns out, a it was not his intended victim's house it was his girlfriend's and she was about to put her infant baby down to sleep in the crib underneath that window mm-hmm. but had not yet come into the room it was almost miraculous nobody was hit i prosecuted the case he went to prison for a number of years later i went to a i got acquainted with his father who was a preacher and a, and a good man mm-hmm. and who was racked with guilt about how his son had taken this turn well then i went to a community event and this preacher was leading this discussion or hosting it at his church. And he said, Oh, and there's someone here today that I'd like to introduce to you and he introduced his son, David Small, who came down the aisle and I thought, that's that's the guy he prosecuted. (laughs) (laughs) And he served his prison time. He's he's gotten out. There's a number of I don't forget how many years, but it was several years. Anyway, he and I hooked up right then, met each other, you know, and and had a conversation. Some conversations later. Anyway, as we talked, I was really interested in learning about his prison experience. And he had had, he'd gone into prison one person, but partway through, he'd had kind of an epiphany of, of sorts, not because of prison, but while in prison. You know, he had a good background. And anyway, he just turned around his thinking, a way of thinking. But he said this to me He said, Dave, what do you think a bunch of criminals all crammed together all day talk about? Crime. How to commit it and how to get away with it. Prison is crime college. I mean, that's a quote. That's what he told me. And in the course of my interviews with people who've gone to prison, they talk about how there's a couple of tracks. Well, three tracks. There's the track of people who are going to crime college, and they're going to emerge better educated and with a better network, criminal network, more dangerous when they get out of prison than when they went in at taxpayer expense, huge taxpayer expense. Like a, almost like a sending people to crime college with a publicly funded tuition. Okay. And then there's others who get on a, I want to have a better life track. And they're usually people who are self, they, they get together and they, they do something themselves. It's not mm-hmm. prison programming that puts them on that track. They collectively get themselves on that track. And mm-hmm. then there's the people who are just doing the time. Is it an in-between track? So anyway, you get these crime college people. But you also get people that want to do it, go in a different way. But the factors that led them to crime smack them right in the face as soon as they're released, particularly if they've only been there for eight months. But, you know, if it's been longer, now, I'm going to give you another statistic here. What is the cost, the true cost of recidivism, recycling someone through the system? The SPAC, the Sentencing Policy Advisory Council in Illinois, also released a report on that. Now. By recidivism, I'm talking about recycling people back to prison within three years of release, which, by the way, includes only those repeat offenders who are caught within Mm -hmm. that time. Okay. And as you pointed out, as the time goes out, more get caught. According to that report, the three-year rate of recidivism in Illinois was 43%, which is actually below the national average. But here's the kicker. The average cost associated with one recidivism event is over $150,000. That's the total cost, system costs, social costs, everything else, $150,000. Now, it's often said the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same things and expecting different results. That is an addiction. We are addicted to our current system of justice, to our punishment paradigm. Shift to a problem-solving paradigm, oh my goodness, the problems just hit you in the face. It would seem nuts, irrational to keep doing the same things. And yet, until we know of better things and are convinced that they're better, well, you're not going to, you know, better the devil I know than the devil I don't know. You know, we're not, when it comes to public safety, people are willing to err on the side of caution and, well, let's just lock them all up and, and just pretend that, we've solved the problem when in fact we've released almost all of them and now if the problem's worse than when they went in we've just used our taxpayer money to make a problem worse
1: rather than better which is where we are okay so that's a good um point building what you just said clearly to move away from the current punishment based system you know having grown up in the uk and being aware of a lot of the um the european let's say a slightly more enlightened view of justice but correction correction yeah and maybe to compare the u.s justice system to different european countries where their justice and correction system is different one of the fundamental differences is the fact that the u.s prison system or correction system is a privatized body and and you've cited some shocking numbers in terms of cost to taxpayers but also i'm sure leaves investors and 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 owners of these privatized systems salivating with the money that they're making given that it's unlikely to change in the us given that the us is a market-driven economy how do we create as you say to move away from that punishment system to problem solving system how do we move to what I be call a more non-penal rehabilitative competitive solution that's still for profit Because if you can compete, create a competitive system that's still for profit, but is more restorative and leads to rehabilitation compared to the, let's call it the prison punishment system that is potentially destroying communities, individuals, victims and the victimized and those perpetrators of violence or, or crime. How do we move away from that? Especially as you say... You've said it in one of your blog posts, prisons should be a special purpose tool, not an all-purpose tool. And added to that as well, one thing you haven't touched on that I've read you mention is what we, because of the nature of the system at the moment, this this punishment system, we have to acknowledge that there, there are communities of people around these overpopulated prisons that their communities rely on those prisons. So how can you, you can't just suddenly change it and leave it overnight you have to think about the transition of these economies that are driven by this for-profit punishment system so there's a lot in there but what's the start point to do this to start to build towards a better future
0: well ultimately we have to align incentives with desired outcomes you take that as your problem solving construct you can arrive at very different sorts of systems now just an observation in the united states most jails and prisons are not privately run they're publicly run mm-hmm. but there are some that are privately run and they obviously have a strong private interest in having in maximizing their prison population mm-hmm. rather than reducing their incentive is to increase mass incarceration, not
1: reduce it. Okay, Mike. My question is: how, how, do, how does that system work? What? When are the prisons private, and when are they public? Is it federal and state level, or how, how does it, or is it more random?
0: It's not random, but it, it is. It, it's an experiment that's been tried, not with necessarily great results. In a few places, a number of places, the the idea is: Well, government doesn't run systems well. Therefore, we should let business do this. Well, when business makes prison their business, they don't necessarily have the incentives to arrive at the desired outcomes that we would want inherently. But whether it be a privately run prison or a publicly run prison with the employee situation you described, which leads to a lot of political resistance to closing prisons because there is a human impact. People go into the prison prison business, whether it be private or public, thinking of it as a career, and particularly when most of them are public, you know, they have pensions at stake here, all of that. And you're going to close that prison? Oh, when it's a major? In Illinois, they spread the prisons throughout the state in less populated counties that were willing to receive them, have them, because they were major sources of employment. All right, you've just solved one problem and created another human problem. Those people need to be accounted for as well. And as you pointed out, they, they need to be redirected into something else. Well, how do you do that? Ultimately, you have to set up a system of incentives that are aligned with the desired outcomes. And you can have programs that are actually social programs, privately run programs, drug rehabilitation programs, programs for dealing with various behavioral health issues, mental health issues, trauma, dealing with trauma, school systems that are paid a certain level Mm -hmm. based on, you know, so that they can run their program. But their future viability as service providers is dependent upon achieving certain outcomes, benchmarks. And when their, their paycheck is tied to achieving desired results, outcomes, they can become pretty innovative about how to best achieve those. And when you go through a system of cost-benefit analysis, which approaches in prison, out of prison, which services are most cost-effective, which is, by the way, another thing that the SPAC, the Sentencing Policy Advisory Council, does, is engage in cost-benefit analysis. Uh, Then you find that there are some things that emerge that are far more effective than other things that may be widely used, but Really don't change outcomes. Mm-hmm. For example, one of the things that the SPAC has identified in prisons and out as being highly cost effective in preventing recid- recidivism is cognitive behavioral therapy. Wow. And yet, and, and then vocational training programs that give people a viable alternative to crime when they get out and things of that sort. The problem is. Having the resources to scale up those sorts of programs to meet the need, what I call the resource riddle. And it's a serious riddle because you can't use, you know, if you can't close the prisons, you're not saving there. And the fact of the matter is, even if you're closing prisons, there are costs that are associated that will make it a one-to-one ratio. Ah, we saved this much money. It, the, the calculus is much more complicated than that. But ultimately, you can end up paying for things that are more cost-effective with funds saved by doing things that are less cost-effective. That sort of analysis is key to any reasonable and effective problem-solving process. And again, align incentives with desired outcome.
1: I mean, as you're talking about that, it immediately makes me think about the need for disruption And we think about, you know, someone like the late, great Clayton Christensen and his innovator's dilemma. You know, you look at how do you create creative, how do you, what leads to creative destruction of systems and markets? And it's about driving more innovation and efficiency, bringing down costs. Do you think we need some form of justice system startup boot camp for alternative ideas and maybe even a, a fund where seed investment can come in to create new penal alternatives. Where, you know, if we think about the levels of innovation that have been generated through Silicon Valley and through other startup communities around, you know, this tech startups, this feels like it's a, a category ripe for disruption that is an opportunity, a profit opportunity for many people and there might be some incredible solutions that will be generated.
0: Is there a need for disruption and along the lines that Clayton Christensen mm-hmm. described? And yes, there is. I am torn between incremental change, which sometimes is easier, but incremental change only really heads in the right direction unless when you know what the right direction is, so there has to be some concept of where we're moving toward and what that this is part of a bigger
1: plan. So your desired outcomes and then you create this sort of the step by step incentives on the way. Yeah. Okay.
0: Because what happens otherwise is the incremental changes are just more or less random and more political motivated or political, at- political outcomes. We've done something rather than actually being part of a bigger plan. So you have to, whether you take an incremental approach or a more innovative and scary, frankly, mm-hmm. more system-wide approach. Well, that's a good question. And it has, it. it's, things are complex. I mean, just take moving from a cash, getting rid of cash bail in Illinois. Okay. Well, we, we did that in the federal system, but in the Illinois system, where they argue about cash bail, it's not really a question of cash bail because really cash bail is used as a means of detaining people. You set a high cash bail and then it holds them and they're detained. Well, why not just order them detained? Why do you use cash bail? Well, a large part of the answer is because that money that is posted as cash bail is used to fund all sorts of programs. Many of which, and people, many of which don't have anything to do with the crime or the type of crime in the, in the case there. So it's all about, not all, but it's mostly about the funding. So you, it's complex. How do you come up with alternative sources of funding for all of this? You've got good ideas here. Let's, let's replace cash bail with just simply either detain them as dangerous or risk of flight or release them. Makes sense. It's more complicated than that. Okay. So you've got to work through all these things and you've got to have some idea of where you're going or it's not going to be linear. It's not going to have, make sense. It's going to be this random that doesn't actually change anything. So yes, you have to have a paradigm shift of some, some type. How do you do that? Well, I also think there are literally hundreds of experts, think tanks, academics, people with lived experience And they have the think tanks particularly, they put out publications, they do all this, and yet most people in the public never hear about these things. Somehow we need to be able to bring, synthesize all of this, make sense of it all, and give effective voice to the people who actually do have either better answers or can point to examples of better answers or have the capacity to develop design better solutions.
1: Well, perfect pivot and a segue to talking about your vision and why you are taking action to do something about this. Aside from Justice Voices, you're also the founder of the Justice Visions Project, where I believe you have a strategic objective to change that public policy regarding the criminal justice system and to drive reform and related issues by changing public opinion through public education you've provided us with a really good explanation of why this change is so necessary but first of all why is it falling falling on your shoulders why are no other people doing this and could you maybe and i'm just going to read from something you sent me uh, your strategic paper on it your clear vision of a genuinely superior criminal justice solution. The project will use a form of design thinking, starting with identifying justice needs of three primary groups, justice stakeholders, victims, public, and those who commit the crimes themselves. So perhaps you could explain why it's falling on you and where you're at with with starting this very much needed and um, admirable project
0: well, I've got the Justice Voices podcast, mm-hmm. which tells eye-opening stories mm-hmm. of people with lived experience with crime and the experience with the criminal justice system. But it raises more questions, ultimately, than it provides answers. Mm-hmm. So we've got to add the answer part. And that's what you're referring yeah. to. And that we are calling Justice Visions. So Justice Voices mm-hmm. and Justice Visions. And the Justice Visions project... Will essentially be what you've talked about, convening, bringing together and seeking to synthesize as a group think, design thinking process to come up with, to consensus on superior solutions and then to publicize those. Now, we've got a strategic plan that's posted on our as a blog piece as of today Mm -hmm. on our justicevoices.org website put in the show notes but you ask why does it fall on me it doesn't fall on me there are lots of people literally thousands of people asking the same questions but if nobody does anything nothing's going to change well
1: but you are doing something about it that's the thing
0: i'm trying to do something about it am i the only one I, i hope not surely not and and hopefully, as, as word spreads, even through this podcast, that we are launching this project, mm-hmm. this Justice Voices, is launching a Justice Visions project mm-hmm. to provide answers through collective groupthink, design thinking process. There will be people who will want to participate, who will suggest others to participate, and maybe even lead me to some other project that is already doing it that we should link up with? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But at this point, and I'm fairly well-informed, what I see is lots of think tanks, each Mm -hmm. with their own publications, their own sources of funding, their own interests, and they are often in competing with one another. And they certainly are not being effective in communicating their voice individually or collectively to the public. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that means that even if the answers already exist, there's still a need for projects like Justice Voices to give voice to those answers, not just the experiences and the questions.
1: I mean, I mentioned the startup culture and environment. And if you were to approach this with a lean startup mentality, you would build a prototype. So if you were to build a prototype for something like this, wouldn't it be Makes sense to identify a small community, your state, where you know there are some enlightened individuals and say, right, we're going to pick this, just this one district linked to this community, this environment, this um, local culture. And we're going to get buy-in and we're going to test it. You tie in the education system, you tie in local business, you tie in further education, criminal justice within that community and any prison system that's there as well. Wouldn't wouldn't is that is that possible?
0: Yes it is. And in fact that exact approach is being done to some extent. I think for example of the Bronzeville neighborhood up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Now there this is a there is a project or maybe a bundle of projects that are that seek to merge community groups faith-based faith-based organizations and the academic community in exactly the sort of problem-solving that we are talking about. And one innovative aspect of that is there is a pastor of a, of a church up there who made connections with an organization in Israel that—and I don't remember the names right now—but the organization in Israel was— had a lot of has a lot of experience and expertise in helping people who are victims of terrorism deal with the trauma of that the resulting trauma so trauma based services the church in the bronzeville the pastor there invited them to come to bronzeville and give training to people there in his organization community organization and to deliver trauma informed services to victims of trauma there because those victims of trauma become victimizers of others mm-hmm. as people who are experienced the chronic trauma of yeah. community violence turn to violence to become the person most feared in the community so that they can be safe. Mm-hmm. That's the process of violentization. And so this addresses underlying causes of trauma. And so they also have a lot of input and support from the academic community and all of this, they end up providing trauma-informed services not only to people in the community and identifying proactively people who need intervention to head off crime before it gets to the criminal justice system, or even if they're in the criminal justice system, to independently approach them and help try to solve the problem. They actually are delivering trauma-informed services to police officers, who experience trauma chronically when they're working in an environment like that and need help. And this builds bonds and relationships of trust between the police officers and at least these members of the community organization. Projects like that exist and they need to be used as part of this, maybe nodes, you know, like these, the sort of thing that you're talking about, pilot programs, collect that somehow into a some sort of centralized and accessible means of synthesis synthesization (laughs) of coalescing all of this and then disseminating it. So if answers exist, wonderful. If there are problems that this reveals, how can they be overcome? And to the extent that there are gaps that need to be filled, how can we bring together these people and others? to fill those gaps and then come up with answers that can be communicated to the public that the public can see convincingly are superior solutions. Then you have the ground laid for a paradigm shift. But until then, it's a scary thing to say we're going to switch from our current criminal justice system to a a different problem solving approach to it.
1: it, it, it makes me think of an interview with a, r- a recent guest, Katz Kylie, who is a real sort of change agent and worked in the UK with technology companies and um, on how to uh, impact disruption and organizational change and digital dis- transformation. And she talks about the IKEA solution as critical to getting humans who are resistant to change to accept change and the only way you do it is by people building solutions together being part of the solution so it's all about co-creation ownership acceptance and what you're talking about there seems to be a perfect example of co-creation and cooperation and collaboration of a community and different stakeholders in building something and learning from it so in a sense what you're i think what you're describing is is almost like a with this Brownsville is how do you create a framework for success that can then be applied and adapted to the particular needs of different communities with some form of like adaptation and for application to their particular needs and requirements. So I think it is really interesting.
0: Well, Um, and that's when I, when I talk about putting together this justice visions mm -hmm. dimension yeah. To the Justice Voices program, this pastor and the community organization associated with them up in the Bronzeville area will will be, I, I'm definitely going to be approaching him because I, I know him or have right. met him when I was in the governor's office. That's how I became acquainted with the program, met with some of the people in his organization. We want to include them in, in the process, and he would make, I've, I've long thought, oh, he'd make a great guest for the Justice Voices podcast program especially now for the justice visions
1: subset of that you've been talking a lot about the the solutions and in terms of not the immediate solutions but a lot of the issues we're dealing with are systemic and lead from as you say from people that have been victims and become the the victim become the victimizers so you've used the term I've seen it, some, you've written it somewhere, that labels dehumanise and stories humanise. Is there a role for what you're doing and from storytelling and also in terms of looking at this more upstream, in terms of thinking about the education system and what we need to do to start to... In a way, it feels like there's the... How do we start to address the immediate issues through things like this Brownsville example, but also longer term? how do we sort of start to to prepare the generations now through education and changing the education system do you think this a uh, there's part of your narrative has to and part of your focus of the justice visions needs to focus on education in schools
0: that's a good that's a good point my first answer would be hadn't thought of that in those terms i am now
1: mm-hmm. yes i agree okay good <laughs> it right. should be Fun. that's it, it, People in educational policy sort of change as well then.
0: Yeah, I'll I give you an example of that. Let's talk about this process of violentization mm-hmm. that, that results in producing truly dangerous, violent people. Mm-hmm. Well, it starts with the first symptom, the first result of this, which is often as a result of domestic violence or violence in the community, is belligerence. So let's say you're in a school and you've got this student who is developing this belligerent attitude. Now, in the school, you could approach this one of two ways. You could say, this kid needs an attitude adjustment, <laughs> you know, the punishment paradigm, so to speak. and Or it could be, oh, this is a symptom of the first stage of violentization. This kid may be experiencing some serious trauma and acting out in the form of belligerence, and maybe we need to address it to try to head this off? That isn't going to happen probably in the community. That's probably not going to happen in the home because many times the violence is in the home. Sometimes it, once it's identified, there's costs involved with providing the trauma-informed services. Is insurance cover this? or there some other programs to cover the costs? All these are things that could head off because of trauma-informed schools And other sorts of other kinds of things where the school system is designed to deliver not only basic education in mathematics and English and history, things of that sort, which may or may not have immediate relevance to the life of a child as they leave the school and therefore aren't necessarily well absorbed anyway. Maybe schools ought to be viewed as nodes where problem solving can take place to produce the kind of outcomes in a student's life that will be conducive to learning now and in the future and help head off problems in the community. In other words, schools as problem solving nodes in a community.
1: Yeah, I was in Sonoma during Thanksgiving, was in a bookshop and couldn't help overhearing a guy behind the counter talking to a woman about how he previously worked before his retirement in education reform under the in the Obama administration. So I had to ask him. But Don, they said, "Oh, what sort of work were you doing?" And he said, "Oh, we were looking at how China was pre-COVID had been really innovating in their education system by building cohorts of students and giving them essentially a vocational startup problems to solve, and to get them to collaborate with each other. So it was it wasn't really just the traditional sort of education system that we've inherited to serve us for the." Industrial Revolution was really looking at how do you create collaboration, cooperation to solve real world problems and create entrepreneurial spirit. And he said it was having huge success in terms of both the motivation, but also the, the cooperation, collaboration between the kids and in self-esteem levels. So, but I'd be ditched because of COVID. It, it does seem to be that more enlightened view to get away from test driven school education measurement methodologies to finding something more like this would be a way forward, particularly in lower income schools where you know you think about the creativity and the curiosity and the innovation of kids as being probably uh, applied to criminal behavior downstream when they are, as you say, violentized or criminalized because of their economic circumstances or let the less the lack of equity and opportunity in their environments and in the education system. So rather than see that innovation and creativity applied to criminal behavior, wouldn't it be amazing to see that unleashed in the economy and what the economic upside would be? It's just, it, it's fascinating to think about it if you could flip it.
0: Absolutely. These high crime areas and low income areas are rich in human capital.
1: Yeah, I know. It's just...
0: And, and we and we squander that capital and, and engage in policies and even institutionalize approaches to dealing with the problems being faced in those communities and in a manner that perpetuates and even exacerbates the conditions that create the problems we're trying to solve. And we end up in this circle that is just, it just makes no sense. I was going to use... I mean it's well it's just nuts mm-hmm. it yes. just is mm-hmm. it is irrational but that's the way we do things that's the way we do it well that is the addiction the addiction to existing approaches and ideas that somehow needs to be broken so that education schools could become if they it all begins with defining the your desired outcomes I mean, that's the beginning of strategic thinking. What are the desired outcomes? And if the desired outcome for a school is to produce students who know how to read, write, and understand basics of history and things of that sort, fine. But what's the point of that if it's irrelevant to to their capacity to become productive, law-abiding citizens? Maybe if in schools in some area, what they need is not what students in another area need or even parts of a neighborhood. I mean, so if you identify what are the desired outcomes and you program accordingly, I think education would look in some ways quite different than it does today. I mean, you even have kids with special needs. And I know we we don't, you know, we classify, we put labels on people. This is a special needs, a child or something of that sort. As opposed to approaching children with The idea that these are learning differences. These are learning differences and and adapt accordingly to achieve learning and healthy outcomes in the child's life that will then make them the lifetime learners, the productive citizens in a community that will help solve problems instead of becoming problems. That would be a wonderful approach to education
1: yeah i I was going to talk about ai and robotics and machine learning and and when i start to think about that in relation to what we're talking about here i suppose it takes me down a path that would probably horrify certain listeners that are maybe more right-leaning in in the us if you started to take data in terms of understanding at a hyper-local community level and you started to track and use machine learning, you could start to identify downstream who are the likely individuals within different communities who are more likely to become violentized or vic- because of victimization or displaying behavioral issues at school who may end up becoming perpetrators of some form of crime. And using that early intervention to divert resources that would have gone previously into. The cost of recidivism to address before it becomes a problem with these children, to give them economic opportunity to bring out their nurture, their creativity, their curiosity, find their gifts, their talents and nurture them because of the investment in in just being so hyper focused on these communities and these, let's say, even family, family level could have huge impact. And it's funny, it made me think when we were talking about one of my first guests was a guy called Tyreek Glasgow, who was a drug dealer on the street corner of South Philly in Point Breeze. And he was shot 11 times and they went to prison and came out, but had went right back to the same street corner he used to run and now runs a Young Chances Foundation to change the lives of kids one house, one street at a time. And I think that's the way we need to start to employ hyperlocal solutions and hyperlocal intelligence at scale. I think that's the only way. It's these, we we you know we we we're in a world where we face with these what seemingly unsurmountable problems defined by the SDGs and the global goals that are to have great templates and boilerplates and and intents and visions and missions and solutions, yet the reality is unless we start to get down onto the street level using hyperlocal, using the technology and the available to us and applying, that's maybe machine learning, from data that's accessible to local governments, to local institutions like you've worked for, you could start to become, apply intelligence and empathy and, and understanding to the reasons why people, to stop the repetitive behaviors within these communities and these families. And I think that for me, that, that would be the obvious solution, but maybe I'm being too idealistic. No,
0: you're not. As a matter of fact, let me give you a concrete example mm-hmm. of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. exactly what you're talking about, okay. in the form of the Ready Chicago program. Ready, R-E-A-D-I. You can Google Ready Chicago It's a program, a project of the Heartland Alliance Mm -hmm. in Chicago. So if you go to heartlandalliance.org forward slash ready, spelled Mm R-E-A-D-I, you'll come to that program. Now, what that does, a a guest on the Justice Voices podcast program, Eddie Bocanegra, Mm -hmm. who actually this would be a great topic for you to explore in more detail than i did with him in, in the justice voices podcast but he's now working with the department of justice he describes the ready chicago program they've coupled with a university going through the big data analysis that you're talking about to identify the people in the the, the high crime areas of chicago who are most likely to become the victims of violence. And then they approach them. Why? Because those people, a large percentage of those people are also those who are most likely to be perpetrators of violence. So by identifying the people most likely to become victims, they're also inherently targeting people who are most likely to become perpetrators. And they approach them with opportunities to and now you think, how do you how do you approach somebody like that? Well, the people approaching them are people who are pretty tough characters themselves and have some background in it, who have had their lives changed by the Ready Chicago program. But they intervene to offer them jobs, but also a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. And they actually divert them off that path of violentization. But it is AI not the government, not the police. It's coming from the academic community that is leading them to the people to be approached for intervention. It's
1: a great program. Well, I think we need more, more of that. So if people want to learn more about Justice Visions, we know they can go to Justice Voices and listen to the podcast. So if they want to help with Justice Visions or be, learn more about it or volunteer to help, where do they go?
0: Well, if you go to the justicevoices.org website, we we'll, you'll learn more about Justice Visions. We'll be adding a page for Justice Visions. But you can also reach you can reach us through the contact page of the website or you can just send me an email mm-hmm. at David.risley at justicevoices dot org.
1: Okay, well hopefully people will. I mean, I think I explained to you before this podcast, my goal with the podcast now is to engineer serendipitous connections and facilitate what I'm calling random collisions of ideas because i think it's only through conversations like this not just with one-on-one but one-on-many that new solutions and new ideas and cross-fertilization of experience insights and thoughts result in new ideas and new innovations and new solutions so i've already got a few people in mind who i should connect you with to help accelerate the impact and change you're trying to make in the world but if there are any other guests you see and think oh you know I think I'll readily connect you. But I, I, I want to ask guests now, we, You know, as this community grows, not just of the guests, but also listeners, what's your ask of the Impossible Network community?
0: Exactly what you've just said. If these ideas, these needs resonate with you, then don't just sit back and complain.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Step forward and ask, how can I be part of the solution? Because we really have these solutions, I I deeply believe, at our fingertips. We need to ask the right questions. We need to be willing to make the changes. But it is complicated. And everybody from a teacher in a school who may not think to themselves, I'm not part of a think tank. I'm Mm -hmm. not part of the law enforcement community. What can I do? To a police officer who's frustrated with outcomes that they see, and and I'll tell you, police officers really are very often, I think, the, the real thinkers here. They're, mm. they're not just boots on the ground. They're also eyes in the community. People in faith-based organizations, academics, they're all part of the solution. We need to devise ways to get together, but one of the easiest ways is just have some place, either whether it be to reach out to you or to Justice Voices and just say, I this resonates with me. I'd like to be part of the solution. How can I do that?
1: Well, I think I mean you mentioned early on about the multitude of think tanks that have written endlessly about solutions to the penal system and the punishment centric justice system in the or injustice system in the US, but we really do need more what I'm calling action engines for progress and local action engines for progress in this world because that's only how we change things you've cited two examples Franzville and this ready chicago project i think these are examples of action engines for change and progress and that's where it happens so i my ask of you is can i we tap your wisdom experience and network to help us build these action engines for progress and you know clearly in your specific domain of expertise which is justice you know, are you open to us continuing to tap your wisdom, experience, and network?
0: Absolutely. I think the most valuable valuable of those will be the network part, which it would be great, wouldn't it, if people who are in a situation could be hooked up with others who are in a similar situation, who have implemented some things that have worked or maybe didn't work, that they could learn from, and just be able to connect the dots.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, whether it's some form of database or network or community having people to be able to share their knowledge insights failures as well as successes Mm -hmm. to be able to build new frameworks is clearly the way forward of individuals it's not going to fall on the politicians let's face it i think it's falling on individuals of action takers like yourself to actually sort of push forward change i think it's a distribution or distributed change makers, difference makers that are going to actually impact the world. And we need to tell more of their stories because our news cycle is full of negativity. We need more positive voices and solutions in the world. So I just say here to help wherever we can, David, and really look forward to seeing justice visions becoming a reality.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity you and I have had as friends to bounce ideas back and forth and, I think you've you're part of the answer yourself. So I hope to take advantage of your network <laughs> and I'll certainly offer my network and the best that I can, best of my thinking or experience or perspective to to contribute to that.
1: Excellent. Well, it's been um, an enjoyable conversation and hearing uh, firsthand about what you're doing and uh look forward to carrying on the conversation. So do I. Okay. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much, and see you next time.